Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast. My name is Jennifer Apple, and this week is our one-year anniversary of starting the podcast. I don't even really know what to do with that information except for soak in the gratitude that I feel for every single guest who has joined us here thus far, for the conversations that we have had, for the ways in which I have already seen and felt and heard this community reaching out and supporting each other and connecting with each other. That was my goal and dream for this podcast, to know that it is happening and that we are here a year later has me fully in my feels. So for this week, I wanted to have on somebody who who has been in the podcast world for far longer than I have, someone who thinks about things in such a brilliant, unique, forward movement way. Tara McMullen of the What Works podcast. And in this episode, we talk about our relationship to work, how we make and find meaning and begin to feel emotionally sustainable in all aspects of our lives, all through the lens of curiosity, context, and care. We talk about work-life integration, understanding our capacity, how to allocate resources, and how small adjustments can make a huge shift. We also talk about how identities are not defined by the doing. We present questions like, who am I without the doing? And do I have what I need to do this well? And we begin to offer alternate ways to approach a more satisfied life. This is one of those conversations that I wish so many of us were tackling more in our daily lives. So without further ado, enjoy. Tara McMullen, I am so grateful that you are here. (laughs) Like there's podcast envy, just a little. Um, (laughs) Also just like general admiration. So thank you for being in this space. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, For anybody who is listening who does not know who you are, who are you today? Yeah, today I am a writer, podcaster, and producer, um, and I am really interested in how we work today. Um, So how we work as independent workers, how we work as small business owners, and how we work as creatives or professionals in more traditional work environments as well. Um, I've been doing this for about 14 years now, a little over 14 years. And my work has taken all sorts of different forms over the years, but I'm I'm very driven by a curiosity about how we can do things differently, mm-hmm. how we can do things in a way that is not as exploitative, as as, as extractive, as personally harmful, harmful to our communities. And so that's really what my work revolves around today. Yeah. I and it's so palpable from the work that you do that this is something that you're continuously excavating, which I think mm-hmm. for me is one of the reasons I'm drawn to your work just because it doesn't, I don't know, I guess I have like a weird resistance and maybe this is just like the I don't know, rebel in me that's just like if somebody claims that they are a full expert in anything, I'm like, well, where <laughs> there's always growth, but I want to make sure that somebody also does know what they're talking about. And there's that mm-hmm. fine balance of like, you know what you're talking about. And also you continue to grow and evolve and and um, excavate more. And I feel like you've really, your body of work really shows that you are constantly in conversation with the things that you are working with. And I'm, I think it's freaking awesome. Um, let's dive on in then sure. with what you do and where we are. 
And in terms of like this community being an artist space, um, a creative space, individuals who are drawn to expression in some form, are the people that you work with ever self-identifying in that capacity or are people just like, I am a human and then I also have many facets and perhaps some of them happen to be in the creative realm? Yeah. I mean, I have certainly worked with a number of artists and creative people who identify as creatives um, first and foremost over the years. Um, Originally, when I first started, I was working exclusively with artists and makers and designers and illustrators. Um, And it was a really interesting space to be in because it's something that I've long admired uh, and been really interested in, but not something that I'm good at. Hmm. That said, you know, I, I consider myself also a creative, um, but my creative work is not in a visual, you know, it's, it's a podcast, it's writing, right? Like that's my, my, that's my creative work. And I think that's often not excluded, but not necessarily top of mind Hmm. for that kind of stuff. Since what I produce is tends to be more either, well, verbal, just in general. Um, That said, I mean, I think that I also have in my my sort of audience, my sphere of influence, a lot of people who do all sorts of different things, who are conscious and aware of the fact that they are bringing a creative perspective to that work. a new podcaster that we just started working with at our production uh, agency, her name is Kathy Onetto. She um, has this idea of the left-brained creative. Mm. And um, I told her, I was like, oh, I totally identify with that. I am a complete left-brained creative. I am extremely creative. I am all about it. And also I'm highly analytical Mm -hmm. and, you know, intellectually curious and all of those things that maybe might be more associated with the left brain. Um, And so I find this, this really juicy intersection of the creative spirit and the work that my folks are doing today, the um, the kinds of um, businesses that they're building. It's a really interesting place to look at how our relationship to work is changing and how our relationship to production is changing as well. How did you come to begin to explore this work to begin with? Um, so like way back in the day? Sure. Um, so 14 years ago, I was a new mom and I desperately did not want to go back to the retail management job that I had been working for five or so years. Um, and so I started looking around, you know, I know, you know, I knew other people were working from home. I knew Mm -hmm. plenty of women were working from home, doing their own thing, um, And so I started to just investigate, like, what does this actually look like? What does this entail? How is this happening? Um, Because I, you know, if if I know how to do something, I have a high level of confidence in my ability to do it. But if I don't know how, it just like, it's not even on my radar. So I started to look for examples of of this going on and found the sort of like early blogging space or not quite early, but like we're talking 2009. So, you know, fairly early, fairly early in social media and things like that as well. Um, Discovered that space and was like, 
this. I can do this. I had actually been started blogging in college in 2003. So it was something that was familiar to me already, something I knew that I liked to do. And, um, and so I got into it that way, just seeing like, can I, can I make a go at this? Mm. And that's when I was really focused on the more traditional creative space as well. Um, and so from there, you know, just thinking about okay, there's all these people out here who are making a living in all of these interesting ways, in all these non-traditional ways. What does this say about the direction of work? Um, because the other thing is that I had just come out of college, burnt out, um, but with a BA degree in religious studies mm. that I, you know, that I loved and valued so much. And I thought, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a talented, skilled person. There's all sorts of different jobs that I can yeah. do, right? But that wasn't actually the case. No one wanted to hire me other yeah. than um, the the lovely Borders Books and Music, um, <laughs> rest in peace. Oh. And, uh, and so I was really interested in this idea that, okay, we've got all of these, especially women, coming out of colleges and universities who have creative smart ways of thinking about the world of, of, you know, doing all different kinds of work. Where is it? Where can they go? Yeah. You know, it was the same question that I had. Where can I go? What can I do with, yeah. with all of the talent that I know that I have? Um, and so once I found the space of people, you know, making their own livelihoods in all these interesting ways, I was like, okay, um, this is a thread for mm. me to follow. And I've followed it in all sorts of different ways over the years. And in in the last few, um, I've really been focused on the sort of the bigger picture around work in general and rethinking that. But um, yeah, I just I find we are in we are at this inflection point, mm -hmm. economically speaking, where the old structures of employment are not working correct um and they're and in some in a lot of ways they are being purposefully broken down in destructive ways and so my question is what what are we reconstructing in their place yeah how can we take care of ourselves and each other without these structures that our parents relied on mm -hmm. or that even you know the people that are slightly i'm 40 you know so even the people that are slightly older than me not even as old as my parents how what what does a work life look like what does a work environment look like when you know w2 employees are becoming fewer and farther between yeah oof first of all thank you for sharing um, I always yeah. find it's really helpful for me. I also imagine for a listener just to like have a bit of a bearing of like the way in which somebody comes to a thing because mm -hmm. usually, especially in – you are in a creative space, like in a creative space. Yeah. It's not linear. <laughs> you didn't go to law school and become a lawyer. You know, like it's just there right. isn't that. And so it's a constant reminder, I believe, of the fact that like your journey is your journey and there is no – one path it's like a right path it's your path and so i think that reminder is always really helpful of like no matter what you're doing and how you're doing it as long as it's healthy and safe for you like you know it's it's quote unquote right you know so mm -hmm. i think that's awesome and I, I you're bringing up this constant question that i feel like artists have of like what does 
a work life look like, especially when you are a freelancer for the majority of your career? What is does it mean to cultivate a security blanket financially, mm-hmm. a lifestyle that you feel holds your values and holds all of you, also your creativity? How do you balance all of those things? And so I think this is really the crux of what I'd love to chat about of like, not necessarily the specifics of like, go out and get this job and this will fix all your problems because it's not that. But for an artist who is living this balance act all the time in the various seasons of one's life, how Mm -hmm. do we begin either being more conscious of what we're building or begin to cultivate a, I don't know what the adjective is, but like a work life environment that feels, insert adjective. Yeah. I like to talk about the work environment as sustainable and satisfying. Right. Those are the two things that I kind of anchor into is I want to feel satisfied with my work mm-hmm. and my life around my work. And I'll get into work and life in, yeah. in a second. And then I want it to be sustainable. Like I need to feel like what I'm doing today, I can keep doing for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years or more because the retirement, like who knows, right? right? In, in 30 years, who knows what that's gonna look like. Yeah. Um, and even if I am squirreling money away, that's not any guarantee in this world either. So um, those are the two things that I, I anchor everything into. And then the other piece of it is that I'm really interested in exploring um, the ways in which work and life are just no longer separate, mm. especially for people in creative fields or sort of knowledge-based work in general. Um, because I think that... I, I it's not original, certainly, to talk about why work-life balance doesn't work, why that mm-hmm. approach doesn't work, although it's it's still terminology that's used quite a bit. Um, and I'll, you know, I've talked over the years, and a lot of other people are talking, too, about work-life integration. Um, to me, at this point now, work-life integration doesn't fit for me either because it's still creating a separation between yes. work and life. Yes, amen. And uh, yeah, and I just don't see any separation mm-hmm. there for a lot of people. I don't know if it's a majority, but it's got to be close yeah. to a majority. Because well, they feed each other. The- like if you're actually right. in alignment with what you're doing work-wise as well as your life, they should be this beautiful blend of this is coming from here and feeding into that, and this is coming from here and feeding into that. So yes. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we talk about work-life balance or work-life integration, what always comes first? Work. Right. And um, I think that we need to see work uh, through a lens that allows us to put it in the right place. And that doesn't necessarily mean that work is less important than life. It's that it just has its own place, yeah. right? Um, but that needs to be a really expansive definition of work. So work isn't just the things that we get paid for. Work isn't just the things that we do in order to get paid for the work that we get paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, so lately, I've been thinking about paid work. I've been thinking about life work. Mm. And then I've been thinking about living. What do you, how do you divide those? Yeah. Yeah. 
So paid work um, would be everything that you do that goes into actually getting paid. So that could be like the product that you produce, mm -hmm. um, the service that you offer, but it's also, you know, billing and, you know, client communication and things like that as well. Um, then life work is the work that you do to create a life based on bringing in a monetary income. What's an example? Yeah. So just like, um, I mean, okay, so for independent workers, shopping for healthcare, okay. right? Shopping for healthcare is life work. It's not living, right? <laughs> it's not leisure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the, but like even just cleaning house, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, cooking dinner, doing laundry, right? Life All that stuff. work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that you might not find a lot of those tasks satisfying, but they're, it's, purposive work. Right. Right. And so that has a, a, a color, a tone of work as well. And then there's living, which are the things that you don't do for purposive reasons, right? Mm -hmm. They're the things that you do because you enjoy them because they add a richness to your life. Um, and so for me, thinking in terms of those three categories helps me recognize, um, sort of the, a fuller picture yeah. of what, what my work life is like, but also um, where my stress might be coming from. Because my work, my paid work may not be very stressful, but if my life work is stressful, yeah. right? If I'm, if I'm helping a loved one deal with a, a medical problem, for instance, well, that's stressful. And we don't have a good way of incorporating that idea that that sort of drain on our resources into the ways that we think about work and then because life work is so often just everything we do outside of work we're often not giving ourselves the chance to live yeah um and so i find those three categories help me think just from a more sustainable more satisfying look at at life um yeah, I'll I'll leave it there. Yeah, that was that's actually such a it it's so wild how like little kind like small little adjustments yeah. of verbiage or reframing can do such macro <laughs> shifting. That is such mm -hmm. a helpful readjustment and recalibration in my own brain because now I'm like thinking about all of the things that I do on a daily basis even just looking at, say, like a to-do list of mine and how so much of the to-do list really doesn't have anything to do with my work work. It has to do mm -hmm. with the life work. And usually if I'm, you know, being really honest with myself, it's that life work stuff that I'm always like, my to-do list is long. And it's all the like stuff that you can keep pushing because there isn't a set timeline by a boss or by mm -hmm. a deadline that's set, but like you have your own internal, like, well, if I don't clean my apartment, I'm living in filth. Like, like yeah, <laughs> I have to, something has to be done. And yet like in theory, I could keep living in filth if I, if I didn't have the time. I mean, I wouldn't want that, but like in theory, no one's telling me otherwise. And so that, that middle part, I guess, and I'm like picturing it as the three and the work is on the left and the right side is, you know, my life. And then the internal part is like the work life and how it splits. Mm -hmm. But in that middle section, that 
it that for me is like as I'm talking out loud is the bleed because if you if that's <laughs> like the messy part in the middle then it will start to impact the way that you are living cuz you're only thinking about all the work life stuff and if you're you know then it starts to bleed into your actual work when there's the deadline things but you have all the other stuff that doesn't have the real deadlines that you're like I wish I had that to be like it's just a really wild reframe so that was really helpful thank you yeah so a couple things on that Breaking it down into three parts like that allows you to say, oh, there's two parts that are not quote unquote paid work, yeah. right? To one part paid work. Yeah. That I think is clarifying in and of itself. And then the second thing is um, in my book, I write about really understanding your capacity. Um, and capacity is access to resources at any given time. Mm -hmm. And our capacity changes, it varies. Um, but the number one mistake we make about thinking, you know, what do I have the capacity for? What resources do I have access to right now? Is that we create an artificial silo between paid work mm. and life work and living. And so we think, and I think when pressed, we don't think this, <laughs> but the way we operate yeah. is as if we have one capacity for life work and living and one capacity for paid work, but that's not true. Right. You just have one capacity. You have one set of resources at any given time that you have access to. And the way we divide up those resources is uh, gives us the ability to either meet the challenges mm. of our work and end of life or not meet those challenges. Mm. It either allows us to move through life and work with less stress or it adds to our stress. Yeah. Um, it either allows us to get better results or it means we're not getting as good results or we're getting bad, harmful yeah. results even. Um, so that's a that's another piece of the puzzle too, is just really being able to say, okay, you know, if my emotional bandwidth is shot between my life work and my living, then I better not need to draw on that particular resource in my paid work because I don't have any left. Um, and getting more granular with that, I think, um, can also really help to build that more sustainable and satisfying work life experience yeah. as well. When you think about resources, are you referring to it monetarily, emotionally, spiritually, human-wise, like all of the above? All of it, all right. of it. Anything that you are drawing on, relying on to do what you want to do. So it's time, it's money, it's health, mm -hmm. it's physical energy, mental energy, emotional bandwidth, social support, skills. Yeah. Um, that's just my list. There are, you know, other people bring other things into it as well, but those are the things that I really personally pay attention to. How do to. you decide in these moments what resources you want to use where? Yeah. Oof. Um, I know that's a so big one. Is, yeah. <laughs> How long do you have? I have um, as much so time you want to give me. So. <laughs> this is actually, um, I just did a podcast episode on this. Um, I'm doing a series right now called The Economics of... Dot, dot, mm -hmm. dot. And the first episode is essentially the economics of decision making. Yeah. Um, and it revolves around opportunity cost. And so in terms of how we want to allocate our resources, we need to be thinking of, you know, what does what does pursuing X cost me versus what does pursuing Y cost me? Mm. And that's not to say that X or Y, one is better than the other. 
it's that they both have costs associated with them. And we need to weigh whether those costs are one, something that we can afford and two, something that we want to pay. Mm -hmm. Um, So for instance, I might say, okay, I've got two ideas for creating a, a new revenue stream in the next quarter. Um, which one am I going to give my time and energy to? Okay. So let's say the time and energy component is fairly equal. They're going to take about the same amount of time on my calendar. They're going to take about the same amount of mental energy. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to think like, okay, one revenue stream is really going to require me to be emotionally present for other people, which is something that's very challenging to me, even though it's something that's also very important to me. Um, And so knowing that that is the cost of pursuing that revenue stream, um, you know, is that is the benefit that I'm going to get from that revenue stream worth that cost? cost? Mm-hmm. And do I have that emotional presence to give? Right. Um, why? So the other revenue stream might be something that, again, takes the same amount of time and, and mental energy, but is a much lower emotional output. However, it also brings in less revenue. Which one? Right is a better fit for me right now. Um, and the answer this year might be different than next year, yeah. right? So recognizing that it's always in flux, it's always adaptable, and like there's no, there's no right answer right. unless you're tapping into resources you do not have. Mm-hmm. Because that's, not only is it unsustainable, but it's also ultimately unsatisfying Yeah, because we we're people who want to do a good job, right? Like, I don't know anybody who doesn't want to do a good job. Yeah. I want to do a good job. I want to feel like when I've completed a project that I put what I needed to put into it to achieve the result that I wanted or to achieve the ends that I wanted to achieve. And if I'm trying to draw from a well that is completely empty, I'm not going to be able to get that result. I'm not going to be satisfied with the end of that work project or that life work project or that living. And that over time really adds up. And it doesn't just add up in terms of like disappointment. It also impacts our self-efficacy. And so self-efficacy is this idea of um, whether you believe you can do the thing in front of you or not. And the more you believe you have the ability to do the thing, in front of you, um, that leads to all sorts of other positive outcomes. You know, it makes you feel happier. Um, you are more likely to achieve the thing in front of you. All all these great positive outcomes. But if your self efficacy gets chipped away at over time because you keep drawing from that well that is empty, it leads to all sorts of really negative yeah. outcomes. Um, and it's something that can certainly be rebuilt, but it then requires allocating your resources um, more strategically as well. I am curious about that, though, because I think especially in arts land, I'll come uh-huh. at it from you know an actor's perspective, which is mine, you know, for my main hat, um, is you know, the narrative of you are consistently putting yourself out there to audition for roles Mm -hmm. and opportunities. And it's possible to 
create the narrative of rejection from the fact that you did mm-hmm. not get what you wanted and gave of your time, money, emotional capacity towards said audition, perhaps many rounds of it. Um, obviously, the flip side is it's not rejection. What I'm doing is performing. And if I've chosen mm-hmm. to be a performer, these little minutes and time that I get to audition are exactly that. I am getting to share my gift. I'm getting to storytell. I'm getting to be in this role, right? There's the two sides. And, you know, I think I oscillate between them depending on how much I really want a thing, if I'm being really honest mm-hmm. and candid. But either way, you are giving of yourself consistently to something that you really want. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I found with many of my clients, whether we call it burnout or whether we call it exhaustion, whether we call it like a a real need to recharge, whatever we verbally call it, there's still this feeling of either not good enough or that it hasn't, your worth is somehow interlinked with your creativity, which it's not. You as a human being are worthy whether no matter what you're doing. It's just literally you are human, you are worthy, period. But all of that starts to get really mixed up. And so So often, many of us find ourselves in that lower feeling. Mm -hmm. So I guess responding to that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So first off, I absolutely freaking love the way that you put, like, I get to spend this time doing this thing. Um, And what I would say about that is what you've done is constructed a meaning for that time that is not based on whether or not you get a part. For sure. the meaning is associated with how you are present in that time. For sure. Um, so that is that to me is the crux of it. Um, I think that, you know, we look for meaning a lot in life. You know, it's something that we we talk about all the time, something that all the self-help books talk about. Um, you know, that's the heart of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm interested in religious studies in the first place. However, um, you know, it's, I think, especially in the last 100, 150 years of, of Western philosophy or so, the, the discourse has really shifted to thinking about all the ways that we make meaning. Yes. It's not about uncovering meaning. It's not about going out and seeking meaning. It's what do I want this to mean? Mm-hmm. And what you've done by saying, yeah, I'm going to show up and this is what I get to do is you've made, you have created a meaning for that time. And so that to me is a critical piece of how we approach work in the 21st century economy is recognizing that there are all these different things that we do. Much of the result of that is completely out of our control. However, if we can approach the practice of work from the perspective of every day, every activity, I am imbuing it with meaning. I am making meaning of this thing. What do I want it to mean? What do I want out of this work that is meaningful to me? And how can I make sure that everything that I do has that little nugget of what I want out of it? With my folks, I'm always talking about like answering email. I hate answering Does email. Do people really like that? Is anybody enjoying that? I don't know. My husband does not enjoy email, but he enjoys that he has a really good process for email, okay. which I suppose is is its own form of, yeah. of meaning making. Um, yeah, he'll talk to, he'll talk your ear off about his email process. And Wild. <laughs> Finding joy in weird places. Let's you know. Yeah, yeah. 
But, um, and so I had just a horrible uh, relationship with email over the years. But what I tell myself when I, you know, it's time to do my email is that this is work that has meaning in that email is how people communicate to me about my podcast, about writing, about, uh, you know, consulting or speaking opportunities. Um, And that, you know, going in there and sorting through the complete crap that comes into my inbox is worth it and in and has meaning in that very thing and so it's something that i've been able to forge a much better relationship Mm -hmm. with so that it doesn't make me feel like oh god i'm so behind well sometimes it still does um (laughs) or that oh god i'm going i've look at this all this rejection in here or look at these mean people or look at these people who are asking me for too much um I don't need to think about it that way. I don't need to do that. I've given it different meaning. Same thing with any admin task, any bookkeeping task. That's where I, I try and put my my focus. But it's the same thing with the big stuff too, like going on auditions, like pitching. Um, you know, if I'm going to, to a a magazine and saying I'd like to write an article on blank, will will you let me do that and then pay me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know that that piece. Like I have to be able to give the process meaning so that whatever result comes back, it doesn't matter. If, I mean, it does, right? Like, I don't want it to sound like it doesn't matter. And then you might not ever get paid right. and like you lose your house, yeah. but it doesn't matter from the perspective of the narrative that I have about myself and my work. How do you create that then, especially for the things that are really hard? You know, we can go back to the audition, you know, conversation. We can go back, we can go to any of them. We can make one up that, you know, is more in alignment with, you know, the work that you do. But like, I am curious when it is a really, when it's something that is so personal to you. Yeah. How do you create that narrative of making it feel purposeful, (laughs) even though if you remove that, it feels very interlinked to one's worth. Yeah. I mean, if I had a perfect answer for this question, I would be a many time millionaire for yeah, sure. Yeah, we all would be. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, I think, is it like sitting down with your values and like, you know, getting really clear with, okay, this is how I want to live my life with intention and purpose and, you know, um, what, like, is it getting clear on that and then imbuing those values into the thing that you're doing and twisting it in a way that makes meaning? Like, I guess, obviously we're talking very conceptually and and very, like, you know, it's it's hard without the specificity, but. So let me, because auditioning is not something I have experience with. Let me go back to the pitching example. So, you know, a couple of times a week, I make a point to pull together a pitch for an article and send it off to, I don't know, the cut or um, fast company. Right. Right. And so I send it off to an editor there and sometimes I get nothing back. Sometimes I get a rejection and every so often they say, yeah, that sounds great. Can you have it done in two weeks? Sure. Um, for me, the process of putting together that pitch email, which is a, it's a lengthy process, yeah. right? It takes a, a good bit of mental energy. It takes time mm-hmm. um, and it takes skill. So it's drawing on all these resources. Um, the process of putting it together to me has meaning in that 
I am working through the exercise of taking an idea, making it enticing to an editor by showing how it would be enticing to their readers, and then describing how I'm going to bring it into reality. That process is meaningful to me. The practice of doing that on a regular basis is meaningful to me because it ties back into the larger things that I want out of my work. It ties into being published in more places, getting more people with their eyes on what I have to say and, and the threads that I'm pulling out on a regular basis. Um, it's meaningful to me in that it's just good practice mm -hmm. for thinking through ideas that way. Um, it's valuable for, you know, uh, getting my next book deal when that time comes, being able to say, okay, I've got this byline and this byline. I've got relationships with editors at these different publications. That's all good stuff. So even though that process is, um, there's a lot of weight to it in a lot of different ways. There's emotional weight to it. There's the potential for rejection, all of that. Um, by finding meaning in the process, just by tying it, like looking at the system. All right, I actually systems thinking, I think might be a good thing to bring into play here. Um, because- What do you mean by systems we can look thinking? At, yeah, so systems thinking is essentially recognizing that everything is interconnected to everything else and not like in a new age kind of way but like literally if i pull on this thread then this thread over here moves yeah, right yeah. um and so i like to think of the self as a system there are multiple i have multiple selves multiple identities and they inter they all have relationships to each other um and i might combine some in one um venue and combine others in another venue um and if I look at the system of who I am and all of those different identities, I can say, sure, rejection hurts the writer. Mm -hmm. The writer identity is hurt when I'm rejected. That mm. makes me sad. Yeah. But it doesn't take anything away from all these other parts of my self system. Yeah. And so I can say, all right, the writer is going to go through these cycles of um pitching getting rejected getting accepted getting published or not some of that's going to be good some of it's going to be bad that's all it's all meaningful in its own way and the fact that the writer gets rejected on a regular basis doesn't change who i am as a mother who i am as a wife who i am as a left-handed person who i am as an autistic person right it doesn't impact those people at all. And so those identities and the self-worth within those identities can stay intact, even as the writer is out there practicing uh, this, this process of largely getting rejected. I love that so much. <laughs> no, I mean, thank you for walking us through that, because I think that's yeah. such a healthy way of compartmentalizing without like deprioritization. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, if you are all of these gorgeous things, these labels that you have given yourself or not, that others have given mm -hmm. you, whether they mean something to you or not, if you are a multifaceted human being, which you are, every single person mm -hmm. is, and you can do a gazillion different things beautifully and wonderfully, then for the harder tasks, in theory, like assigning that to a single part of yourself 
and letting that one take a little bit of a hit doesn't take away from the like the mass feeling. Um, and or like, you know, again, I'm talking this out loud as I'm hearing you speak. It's like, let's say I do get a lot of I assign a lot of my self-worth through my actor performer hat and I put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on that hat and I some days this is true, some days it's not. But let's say, you know, for the purpose of this right now, it's like that's where I get a lot of my validation and that's where I seek approval. Perhaps like creating another little hat for yourself that's like a micro hat under the actor hat that's just like a the um, trial and error actor hat or like the I'm making this up as I go or like, you know, the yeah. the faux auditiony hat or like the whatever hat that doesn't hold all of the weight as one's like larger actor hat, then it just becomes this little subcategory that can hold the rejection, that can hold the disappointment. Um, I think that's such an interesting way of compartmentalizing because you're protecting and supporting the other parts of yourself to not be totally taken down when things don't go your way. Yeah. I think another way that you can approach that too is, all right, your actor self might be taking a hit this week. Well, what does that mean for your, like, what could you do to bolster your friend hat, Mm. your friend self this week? What what could you do to uh, bolster your foodie self this week? Like there are these things that when we're, when we start seeing all of the different ways that we can show up in life, then we can start treating those identities even as something else is maybe uh feeling a little uh, feeling a little down or a little drained um i feel like there was something else that i was gonna say on that oh i know what it was um the other thing that i really love is the idea of experimentation Mm -hmm. and 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 you kind of hinted at this as well um that i think experiments are much lower stakes than like I have to do this thing for my profession, yeah. right? Or I have to do this thing for my family. If you can turn things into it into experiments, um, you lower the stakes. You recognize that the goal is learning as opposed to a particular outcome. Yeah. Um, and so that's another way I think that you can kind of balance. Um, and then also a question that's been very, very personally meaningful and inspirational to me. Um, I heard via uh, Jocelyn K. Gly of the Hurry Slowly podcast. Uh, this was years ago now. She she did a couple of episodes on the question, who am I without the doing? Mm-hmm. Who am I without the doing? And so if you can say, okay, well, auditioning and even getting rejected is doing, there is a whole you that is not part of that. And I used to look for like, well, who is that person? Hmm. Like, how would I describe the me that is not doing? Yeah. It's like, to me, that's not the point anymore. The point is not to describe who I am without the doing. It is to recognize that doing is just one piece of how I show up in the world and that there is all of this other stuff that is also me that is not in any way tied to that particular activity, that particular project, that particular rejection. Oh, I love that. I am a self-ascribed and probably also not just self, but other-ascribed, like, doer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I think many of the people that I admire, I'd probably put that on them also, be like, you you accomplish so much, you do so much, blah, blah, blah. There's a productivity framework that I 
I admire people through, which is I could probably go and analyze that with my therapist in my own time. Yeah. You know. <laughs> but, but I think that is such a that is such an interesting way of really getting to the crux of I would argue joy. Right. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, especially if we are trying to compartmentalize or not compartment, like if we're trying to divide our lives into these three categories again, I think it's a real way of recognizing how we're showing up to each of them without the doing. If we're just simply existing in our workspaces, if we're simply existing in our work life, if we're simply existing in our living spaces, what are we feeling? What joy are we bringing of ourselves inherently without all of the stuff? Um, which is such mm-hmm. an interesting thought experiment when when so much of how we even show up into the spaces is because we're drawn to it by what we're doing. Yeah. And it's like, well, if I didn't show up doing the thing, am I even showing up? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we all have those identities that are not associated with what we do. Oh, yeah. Right? And And so understanding that those exist is helpful. Um, you know, and I'm I'm not anti-doing. I love me some doing too, right? <laughs> um, and I want to make sure that that's not my entire identity. Yeah. My entire identity is not what I output. Yeah. Um, it has, there's so much more to it than yeah. that. Have you been using the same monologue for years and could use a new piece? Are you applying to BA, BFA, or MFA programs and need a monologue for that process? Are you someone who simply has no idea where to search for monologues? Well, lucky for you, I do what is called monologue sourcing, in which I find monologues specifically chosen for you. So many artists use pieces based off external labeling for types and roles rather than find pieces sharing who they really are and what speaks to them. So we'll meet virtually together, you share who you are as a human, what you love, your dislikes, your values, beliefs, family, friends, love, politics, you name it, I will help guide you through this. And then I go off on my own and find you monologues chosen just for you that fit like a glove. I've been doing monologue sourcing for years as an extension of the coaching I do with artists, and I have found pieces in this way for over hundreds of artists thus far. So if you are someone who wants to feel empowered about the monologues you bring into rooms and use for auditions, I would love to help you find them. And because you are a dedicated listener of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast, I want to provide you with a custom link to an exclusive rate when you check out today. Head to empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo to register. That's empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo right now. I cannot wait to help you find monologues you absolutely adore. We've talked a lot about the sustainable aspect of things. I want to go back to like Mm -hmm. the satisfied part of it. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that you use that word because I feel like society wants to probably put success in there instead of satisfaction, like success being successful versus satisfied. And so I'm curious why that is A, the word that you've chosen and Mm -hmm. B, how one can continue striving towards the feeling of satisfaction. Yeah. So first I'll say the reason that I chose the word satisfaction to really focus on is because it is uh, not as fraught. It doesn't have as much baggage as happiness has, as joy has, as success has. All of these other words that we have learned 
you know, we're, we're supposed to be happy or our goal is to be happy or joyful or whatever. Um, those words have a lot of baggage. Mm -hmm. Satisfaction is something that feels good while almost being morally neutral. It's weird because point. when you said the word initially, I did have that visceral response as like satisfied. Like it's also like when you fill out a survey and it's like one yeah. to five and they're like in the middle, it's like satisfied. And you're like, yeah, I guess the meal was fine. I didn't get poisoned. But like, you know, would I go back? Unclear. <laughs> yeah. Like if I had another option, probably not. But like I wouldn't force myself not to. Like it's just like it is that neutral survey word. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that's so missing. Correct. Right. Um, so all of consumer capitalism is oriented around making sure that we are unsatisfied mm -hmm. so that they can sell us the thing that fits that particular hole. Yeah. Right. And I'm always hesitant to like bring it back to capitalism. No, but please. sometimes you just got to bring it back to capitalism. It always goes there. Uh, just yeah. <laughs> But this is something like literally if you, you know, this evening when you go and turn your TV on um, and maybe you're watching YouTube and uh, the, the commercials come up, mm -hmm. pay attention to the message behind every single commercial that you hear because 99 out of 100 of them are indicating to you in one way or another that you are not satisfied with the way things are. Yeah. You are not satisfied with who you are with what you have, with whom you're in relationship with, the work that you have, the things that you've bought, all of those things. Our society revolves around us being unsatisfied. So to me, satisfaction is the most subversive mm. word that I can put on uh, this state of being and the state of work. So satisfaction, the underlying process behind satisfaction to me is practice. Um, the other thing that's kind of going on here, and you've, you've alluded to it as well, is that we have this orientation toward achievement, mm -hmm. right? We live in an achievement-oriented world. We work in an achievement-oriented world. We went to school in an achievement-oriented world. Um, I am a self-described recovering overachiever. The recovering is sometimes in bold and sometimes like barely there at all. <laughs> um, but I'm a recovering overachiever. I have always organized my life around achievement. And when you organize everything around achievement, you end up being unsatisfied most of the time, yeah. right? Because I don't care how good you are you will always find those things that you are not achieving, yeah. right? And after every achievement, there's five other things, 10 other things, 50 other things that you're like, well, I haven't achieved that yet. So I better go out and get that. So instead, um, like I said, what underlie or what uh, is the sort of foundation under satisfaction is practice. And so I, um, I juxtapose those two things. So instead of an achievement orientation, my goal, my objective is to have a practice orientation. How am I envisioning this work, whether it's life work or paid work, how am I envisioning this as a form of practice? Not practice to get better, but practice like a meditation practice, practice like a yoga practice, practice like a breathwork practice. How am I showing up to this day after day in a way that makes me feel good, mm. in a way that makes me feel satisfied? What can I shift at any given time so that the practice of this has 
has been organized and instantiated around this idea of satisfaction. Mm. Where am I not able to satisfy myself? And if that's the case, like what needs to shift? What needs to change? Where do I need to grow? What do I need to say no to? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I often talk about in relation to this too is, you know, kind of tying it back to where we were with capacity and resources is that we're often asking ourselves, well, how can I squeeze this other thing in? Yeah. How can I squeeze in another goal, another project, another part, another article? And instead, I like to ask, do I have what I need to do this well? Do I have what I need to do this well? When I ask myself if I can go after that article or if um, you know pursuing that revenue stream or getting this idea out into the world, if I can do it well, if I have what I need, it's going to be satisfying no matter what the outcome is, because I will have I, I will feel like I showed up as my best self as as the self that is going to to do a good job at this but if i don't have what i need then i'm only deepening that rut of feeling unsatisfied because whatever i produce is not going to make me feel good it's not going to satisfy me in any way i'm going to see all the holes in it i'm going to see all the places that i compromised um so that for me is a is a really key way of kind of shifting into this practice orientation and starting to prioritize satisfaction as opposed to achievement. Yeah. When you are trying to make those decisions about whether you have the capacity to Mm -hmm. enter into this thing, are you genuinely like taking time and like doing an internal assessment of where you are at emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, all of that? Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because I find that I suck at it. And the vast majority of people suck at it. Yeah. Well, because it's an intentionality of building in to your practice of like taking a beat and really yes. breathing and really saying, yeah. like, where am I? Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I also find too that in taking that beat, there's often like the the answer to the question isn't ever actually yes or no. It's rarely binary there is often a creative way or there's often an unexpected way to engage with someone asking for a favor or having a new idea or you know having a conversation with your partner in which it's not either all in or all out it's you know i can't do that but here's what i do have capacity yeah. for yeah that's not going to work for me that like i literally can't put that on my calendar but here's what I can offer you. Um, And wow, is that an empowering and satisfying way to respond to an ask, to realize that it's either, that it's not binary, that there's always a creative option. And the only thing you have to do to get to it is to stop and say, do I have what I need to do this well? Like, yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah. It's also a, uh, a lighter way of building one's practice, I would say, in boundaries you know, yes. because it's not like, well, how do I set a boundary for this? Or like, this doesn't feel totally in alignment with me. And now the boundary has to be set. Not that a boundary is a bad thing. It's not. It's, it's, but I think there's a, it's a lighter way of approaching mm-hmm. your, 
yeah, your capacity and like what yeah. you need to feel safe, what you need to feel like you can bring of yourself wherever you are in that moment to said thing, which in turn is actually going to be meeting somebody fully because you're only able to bring of yourself what you're giving. Um, I love that. It's a different way of creating the structure that isn't from a place yeah. of scarcity or isn't from a place of fear. Um, it's of inviting um, what is possible. Yeah. To me, it's more tangible. Mm -hmm. So boundaries often feel like they're the, they come from this sort of like wiggly, fuzzy place that's like, it's a, it's almost like, well, this is a thing I say no to just because I say no to mm. these things, right? Whereas when you say, I don't have the capacity for that, whether that's, I don't have the money for that, I don't have the time for that, I don't have the emotional bandwidth for that, at least to me, it feels like I can see like the meter, yeah. right? Like I know that meter's low. I There's not gas in that tank. Yeah. And in my experience, that's how others receive it as well. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, that is that's a that's a hard stop for you. That's a yeah. hard line for you. And I think that is super empowering. The other thing that I wanted to bring up here too is uh, the writer Anne Helen Peterson has this great way of talking about not setting boundaries but creating guardrails. Yeah, we talk about that as our... it's like doors or oh. mm -hmm, same type of thing. You can open or shut the door. It's like mm -hmm, it's a little bit more flexible. Yes. Well, th so this is actually, instead of boundaries being something that you have to uphold yourself, guardrails are something that's essentially policy. Mm. Like there's a rule around this or there's a system around this. And so like for me, one of the things that has been really helpful is creating a guardrail around how many calls that I will take in a day or a week. Mm. And so literally being able to look at my calendar and saying, nope. I like, there's not a slot for that, yeah. that week. That's not going to happen. And having that place where I guess it is actually in that case, a little more black and white, <laughs> uh, but very tangible, like, well, there's six spots open in this week, six of them are full. And so no, I can't, I can't hop on the phone with you yeah. right now. Like there's just, there's not space. Yeah. Um, that's been really helpful yeah. for me personally. I think all of what what I've heard, what we've been talking about really comes from a place of curiosity and yeah. how can one continue to cultivate curiosity within oneself about these different parts, these the emotional states one is in, reframing, like all of it is about approaching all of these things with a an open mind and an open heart to listening to yourself and then responding accordingly without it feeling pushed, which yeah. feels great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I look at all my work through three values, curiosity, mm -hmm. context, and care. So curiosity, you've just described perfectly. Yeah. But yes, um, context to me is another huge piece here, which is just making sure that we understand the full environment, the full system, the full history of whatever it is that we're sort of getting a little friction around or that we're feeling really good around mm -hmm. too. Um, so that we can see, oh, the reason I'm feeling unsatisfied with my 
desk setup is because I keep seeing this commercial that shows this desk setup that is supposed to be better than mine, but really they're just trying to show me a desk, right? Yeah. Like, that's context. <laughs> um, and then care, uh, I think speaks for itself, but like thinking through all right, as I'm pursuing curiosity and context, how am I taking care of myself? Yeah. What can I pull into this that allows me to take better care of myself? And also, how does caring for myself help me care for the community, care for the collective yes. as well? And so both that internal and external lens on that. I think you're a rock star. I <laughs> am going to be thinking about this conversation in so many capacities on my own. I am so endlessly grateful that you've given of your time within your guardrails to us. Um, for anybody who is listening, who wants to work with you, who wants to reach out, what within your own boundaries is the best way? Yeah. So I would say everything that we talked about today is directly relevant to my book, which is called What Works, a comprehensive framework for, to change the way we approach goal setting, um, which you can find at explorewhatworks.com slash book. Um, and then the best place to find me personally or, or like more interpersonally is on either LinkedIn, um, where you can search up Tara McMullen, what works, you'll find me, um, or on Instagram. So every week on Instagram, I post um, a couple of big pieces of content there, and I'm often talking back and forth with people. Um, and then my podcast, uh, you can find wherever you're listening to this fine podcast, also called What Works. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Um, it's like one of those things, again, that I I bring on people that I just love their brains and the way that they think. And it's just so clear that you are really helping so many people reframe their lives to become more full human beings. And I just, I think if more people continue to invest in themselves in this way and be curious about themselves and their process in this way, the world would be a far more empathetic place. And so I'm excited that hopefully more people will continue to listen and delve in and um, excavate. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the great questions and conversation. Yes. I had so many aha light bulb moments during this conversation with Tara. And I hope that perhaps it inspired you to think about things in a different way as well. Now, as a year anniversary gift, if this podcast means something to you, it would mean the world to us if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to continue having these conversations and making these episodes for you. We also encourage you to like us and follow us wherever you stream so that whenever we drop an episode, you know it's there. If you did not like this episode or you do not enjoy this podcast, just please let it all slide. If you are not yet following us on Instagram, please do so at Empowered Artist Collective, on TikTok at Empower Artist Collective, more on our website at EmpoweredArtistCollective.com. If you are seeking some merchandise or you want to be added to our mailing list, please sign up in our show notes and check out the links below. As always, and especially on this year anniversary of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast, I am so endlessly grateful that you keep on coming back. And we will be back again next week. Until then.